The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we say thank you for what we just sang. You have sent one to us who is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. You have sent one to us to save. We say thank you that you have promised to send him again to finish it all, to come again a second time, to set up his kingdom to reign visibly. He's on the throne now. We don't see him yet, but he will come visibly and he will reign and he will make it all right. In the midst of a world that's broken and dark, we say thank you. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for telling us. Thank you for telling us in your word. Thank you for your word. We now open that word to us and teach us about it and in so doing, teach us about you and your, your kindness and your mercy and your wisdom to give us a clear message, a clear guide, a sure guide for life. So teach us now this morning, Lord, will you, will you inform our minds, will you shape us, and will you shape us towards hope and shape us towards more effective witness, shape us towards more Christ-like living. Use this this time here, use your word to build your church and honor your name in it. That's our request of you this morning, Lord. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It seems almost impossible to believe that we should live our lives in this modern world according to what is written in a several thousand year old book the barriers there seem almost insurmountable. A book that we'd have to read. People don't do that anymore, we're told. People don't read. But if it's written in a book, that means it's also fixed by someone else other than us ourselves. And it's not going to change or reimagine itself to fit new times. And in the times that it's fitted to, several thousand years old, hopelessly outdated, archaic, no way it's going to meet the needs or the whims or the fashions of today or tomorrow. So a lot of people hear this and say, ah, you know, no thanks to the offer of the Bible Here's a book, and in it is food and water for your soul. Here is light for your path. Here is God's wisdom. Here's the way to meet him and know him and walk with him and experience his forgiveness and his love and his guidance. No thanks. 
Instead, most people decide to go their own way and live according to a whole host of other guides and urges and impulses that all derive from this world, from right here. The Christian, though, hears, knows, receives that this book is our sure guide, the only one in the world, the Bible. Last week in 2 Peter 1, Peter told us about what he and two other apostles personally witnessed, not theorized about, not were taught, but saw and heard themselves, personally witnessed. This is verses 16 to 18, the transfiguration of Jesus. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus bodily altered in an amazing, alarming way. And amidst all the other amazing, alarming physical realities, they also heard the voice of God speak. And that voice identified, declared that this Jesus was the long-promised son the beloved one, the Messianic king of Psalm 2. They saw and they heard that, and that's why they preached that Jesus would come again, come again one day in power, because they saw that's who Jesus is. He's the Messianic king, going to reign in power. He's going to come again to do that, though, because he didn't come like that the first time. The first time he came humbly, offering mercy. So the whole setup means that there's got to be another time when he comes and does that. Transfiguration then calls for a second coming. That was what we considered last week in verses 16 to 18. But also, if you think about it, the transfiguration also reinforces the truthfulness and the reliability of passages like Psalm 2, which is our bridge into today's passage. This passage, this, this Psalm 2 idea, it's in all the rest of the Old Testament, in fact, it was all... All those ideas, all those verses, all those chapters, all those books, they were written down a long time ago. And then for 400 years, nothing was added. A long period of nothing, which would have naturally raised the question, is that stuff true? Are these verses and chapters and books, are they reliable? Is there anything to them? I wonder until the transfiguration comes along, and with it, the numerous other events of Jesus' first coming, and all that shows, not only Psalm 2, but all the rest of God's word, all the rest of the Bible, it is, in fact, true and reliable, as it happens. This book is, in fact, food for our souls, light for our paths. That's what we're going to consider this morning in 2 Peter chapter 1, near the very end, verses 19 through 21. The reliability of the Scripture and what's in it, and why it's good, and why it's light, and why it's food. So that's what we're going to be considering this morning. Let me read this passage. It's the last few verses of 2 Peter 1, and then draw two observations from it. And part of, as I'm doing this, part of, if you want a little more thought about the Bible, two weeks ago, Peter was also talking about the Bible. You might want to go back and, and reference that sermon. I'm not going to say the things I said then, but they kind of do fit together in some ways. So you might jot down your notes this morning and two weeks ago. They kind of form a unit, if you will. But let me read 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. 
And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1. So two observations. Here's the first. The transfiguration further shows God's word to be the sure guide for life. The transfiguration further shows God's word to be the sure guide for life. Verse 19 begins with the word and because this is the continuation of the previous statement we looked at last week. Verse 16, essentially, we didn't make up this teaching about the second coming. It's not a cleverly designed myth. It's coming in power to reign, but rather we teach it because of what we saw and heard in the transfiguration and not only that, also, we have something more sure. A second related reason we teach the second coming, we have something more sure, the prophetic word. A statement which has caused a fair bit of confusion in the church. Because, so we've got to work on this a little bit because it's, it's a little confusing. And it's confusing because, as we'll see, he's talking about both the Old Testament and some specific places, but then as the verses work on, we realize it's, it's those, it's this, it's actually the whole of the Bible that he's talking about. And theologically, when we realize that, we were Christians, we always, like, theologically, almost instinctively want to be very clear that the Bible stands above our personal perceptions or experiences or impressions which is true, and in fact, that's actually the general point that I'm gonna be making right now. So that's, that's a true and very important point. It's a crucial one, in fact, and all kinds of people in the past, and, and certainly today, all kinds of people work the other direction, work backwards from that. My personal feelings and my urges and my desires and my experiences and my thoughts and such and such, they are this, that, the other, and of course, since I know that's true, let me go find some Bible to reinforce that. Tons of people work that way. And we see that going on and we want to say, whoa, 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 that's not right. And it isn't right. And so we often want to affirm and assert and remind the supremacy of the Scripture. And so theologically, almost instinctively, we want to make verse 19 say, the prophetic word is even more sure, more certain than whatever I think I see with my own eyes. It's more sure than whatever I think I hear with my own ears. The Bible is more sure than my own senses. That's true, but that's not what verse 19 is saying. That is true. But that's not what verse 19 is saying. And if you're reading either the NIV or the NAS translation, you'll notice that in English they've added in another word to make that clear. 
It's not in the ESV, that, like the one that I read, but it's in other translations. We have something made more sure. In English, that word's been added in to clarify. Peter is saying the transfiguration has done something for him and for us. Before, we had the Old Testament, and now we have the Old Testament more sure, firmed up, made more certain. We've seen some of the prophecies fulfilled that strengthens the certainty with which we look at the rest of the prophecies. If I promise you 10 things, you may think I'm a trustworthy guy, you may know my character, you may be inclined to believe me, but as I start ticking off the list, and I do that one, 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 and I do them in the order that I said I would do them, your certainty soars. Because you look at me and you say like, well, you were a trustworthy guy in the first place, but now he's doing it. Right there, right? He's doing it. Of course he's going to do what's not been done yet. And that's not to say that you believe your own eyes more than you believe my word. That's not to set your perception above my word. It's to say that my actions are strengthening my word. It's about me. My actions are strengthening my word to help you believe me. That's exactly how God works. That's how God always works. That's how God's always working with his written out promises. He says in his words something and then his actions come along and back it up to help us trust him. To help us walk with him by faith. Faith is about the future. Faith is looking forward at something and believing, trusting something that hasn't happened yet. But the reason that I trust, believe something hasn't happened yet is I can look back at the track record and see all that has happened. God said and God does to help me believe that what God said but hasn't yet done is going to happen. That's how God works. And Peter is simply pointing that out right here in verse 19. Why trust him? Why believe this book is his word? And why believe that when this book talks about a second coming, it's actually going to happen? I've seen him keep his word again and again. He's shown himself trustworthy. His word is true. Or to put it another way, after the transfiguration, Peter was more confident in the scriptures and more eager to preach what they promised. Because he'd seen God's action reinforce God's word. All of God's word, in fact. Certainly, for sure, he has in mind initially a couple of specific prophecies. We talked about two of them last week. Psalm 2, Isaiah 42. 2 Samuel 7, the, the Messianic Covenant. He's got in mind some specific things, but as the next couple verses make clear, he expands it to be all prophecy. All things that God gives his people to write down. So all of the Bible is in view here. The whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament, which is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, it's all written down, made more certain, and reinforced by the coming of Christ. It's all pointing towards or looking back and saying, here it is. 
It's all about God's plan of redemption, Messiah and cross and new covenant and resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on believers. That all happened already. This Christian faith, this New Testament faith, it's actually just the natural conclusion of the Old Testament faith. They are partners. They are, they are bookends, old and new. They fit together. And it's all very nearly completed. Only the last chapter has yet to happen, the second coming of Christ. But he's done so much and given us the Spirit as a certain down payment to guarantee I'm going to finish it off. I, I will do the rest. This is God's word. So much has already happened that reinforces it and makes it all the more sure. And so you do well to pay attention to it, says Peter. In a very gentle, very gracious exhortation, which of course means you would benefit from, and so of course you should read this, trust it, and obey it. It's a very gentle exhortation. Read, trust, and obey God's word. Pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place, he says. On a dark night out in the wilderness, or home when the power goes out. If you happen to have a flashlight, you turn it on. And when the light comes on, everybody notices it. Everybody then starts looking at what the light is illumining, illuminating. Nobody has to command that. Hey, turn on your flashlight. Hey, shine the flashlight on the trail. I mean, if you're, maybe if you're a kid, but if you've got any kind of experience, you, you know, I know what to do with this thing, I know where I need to shine it, I know what I need to use it for. It happens almost automatically. Because I have a light and it's dark. If we really realized what you have here in this book, what God has kindly provided, in the words of Psalm 119, a lamp to your feet and a light to your path, we really realized what this is and really realized all the darkness all around you? Lamp and darkness. We live in a fallen world. I'm, I'm saying something here that we should really realize but often don't really realize. Everything around us is fallen. And even our own hearts are fallen and full of confusion. Your, your gut instinct is not a good guide. And your neighbor's gut instinct is a terrible guide. We live in, in a world that is obscured and truth is clouded and deception and weakness and ignorance abounds. all mixed in there with some good stuff and, and some incredible intelligence and, and some really helpful things. It's, it's just all tossed together and swirled up by a, a blender and you, you can't really tell what's good and what's not, what's, what's twisted and what's straight. We live 
in a world of darkness. Pitfalls on every side, and we have to walk through it. And great confusion and great danger to our souls lies all around us and is mixed in with everything that we encounter and is commended and championed in pride by the world. Held up in front of us, celebrated. Sin and folly destroys people and it destroys a people. And we're seeing that all around us right now. This is, this is not a game. There are no do-overs. What we are dealing with is life and really important choices. We are walking along the edge of a cliff in the darkness And God has kindly provided a lamp showing us truth and error, what he commands and what he forbids, who we are and what our identity actually is as it's given to us by our maker. This is about facts and proper feelings and how we are made, and what God calls us to, and what life is for, what it's about, how we work, what's good for us, and what only seems to be good for us, but is in fact destructive. What is righteous and just, and what is evil and wrong. We need to know those things, and God tells us truthfully, this is a lamp that shines truth for us and also reveals and points us towards wisdom, how to walk in God's world according to God's truth. This is an incredibly valuable book. It does that for us. It has that for us. But, but more than that, Ultimately, what we need for life is not just truth known and wisely applied. We need God communed with personally. We need to know who he is. And this book, more than a collection of truths and facts, it's actually a character study. I always bristle a little bit when I hear people talk about this as being like the owner's manual for life. I get what they're saying. They're kind of talking about what I was just talking about. But it's not just... Like, step one, step two, step three, step four, or this is where the off button is. This is how to, like, the owner's manual for a device. It's a character study. It reveals to us a person, God, in all of the stories and all of the, the long and intricate narratives and in the detailed commands and prohibitions of his law. And especially, especially, in the core theme of this book, his plan of redemption, the gospel. The clearest witness to his character, and it's the point of this whole thing. We meet him here as the Spirit of God fills us with this word and transforms us by renewing our minds and showing us the goodness of God in all of his glory come to save a people. Not just to command and order and make it all work out right according to truth, but to step into a people who are 
thoroughly messed up and say, I got it. Fix and carry home to save. It's God's grace and God's meekness and God's humility and his omnipotent love for us that shines through all this. His incredible, his burning justice and righteousness and his deep wisdom that figured out how to match those two things together. How do you match together justice and mercy? The cross, that's how. What a plan. What a wise and gracious God. This is not just truth, it's a person. We meet him here. And as we meet him here and we, we read this and we hear it preached and we discuss it together with other people, two weeks ago sermon, as we come to this word and this word comes to us, that's how the glory of Jesus, the glory of God in the face of the Son shines into us and transforms us and renews us while we walk in the darkness still. He comes to us by the Spirit through this book, this lamp. Christ is going to return one day. The passage alludes to it. One day the morning sun will rise and we will see him as he is face to face, no longer through a glass dimly. We'll see him face to face and we won't need the book because there he is. No longer have, a flesh, have flesh to impair us no longer have a world to confuse us. No, no longer have stuff cleared away, fixed, all things bright and clear and right. That day is coming, but until then, we still walk in the night, walk through the world vulnerable. And for that, God has given us a lamp to show us the path, to show us what's true and right, to show us himself and his character, and to woo you to him. This is the sure guide, the only one. Pay attention to it. Heed it. And that leads us on to the second point as it answers almost the unasked question, why should I trust it? So here's the second observation. I've been touching on it already in different ways, but here it is. Scripture is the sure guide for life because it comes from God, not people. Scripture is the sure guide for life because it comes from God, not people. Verse 20 continues the sentence, introducing the answer to this unspoken question. Why? Why should I pay attention to it? Because here's what you know, first of all. Before you even know what's in it, before you even know what it says, you know where it comes from. It came from God, not from us. We really need this. So for the next couple, next couple minutes here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about something here that we really need and we really need to understand. And I want us to think about this because I think it raises in us some of the treasure of this book and especially it should help us if we can have the right attitude. It'll help us talk to other people. We really need this book from God. 
not from us, something that is from outside of the contained system that is us. Our world, our circle of friends, our own minds and hearts, something that can gauge our movement because it's not moving with us. An objective reality that comes from outside. That's what the Bible is. He writes, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And what he's touching on there is the process of inspiration. How do we get this? Where did it come from? While also lacing in there a very subtle indictment, which is what we need to consider. We've all had something unusual happen to us, something that just occurred, we perceived, like a loud noise, something happens. You didn't make it happen, but there it is, and then you, you put on it an interpretation that's based on your own prior experiences. You hear a loud crash and you think, that sounds like a car accident. Or someone else says, no, more like somebody dumping a bunch of glass into a recycling bin. And you think, okay, well, you weigh it out, one or the other maybe, who knows. That's how all the world works. Stuff happens. Things we don't control, circumstances and accidents and good fortune and feelings and strong desires in our hearts and attractions and dislikes and fears and moral dilemmas and, and ethical choices, etc. Stuff happens. And then each person or sometimes a cultural leader or influencer, decides what it means and drapes over it an interpretation over that event or that fear, pronounces on it and interprets whether to pursue it or to shun it or whatever. And then that's what we all go with. Whoever can wield the most power gets to decide what society calls true and best. At least for right now. True and best will change in the future when somebody else gets more power and wrenches the ability to declare and pronounce. But for the meantime, this is how we will live. We should think that through very carefully and understand it ourselves and be able to talk about it graciously with other people. Be ready to give an answer to those who can't see why in the world we would want to live according to what's written in the several thousand year old book. There's good reason to because without that book, might makes right. And chaos and oppression ensues. The world, from its own interpretation, is trying so hard to make a reality that has no external fixed point of reference. People interpreting themselves and their own desires according to their own selves' desires. It is a hopeless confusion. That's what's going on. And there's a subtle indictment in this verse, in that sentence, about that. And as we understand that, and as we express it, as we talk to the people about that, we must not express it as an indictment. 
that'll go nowhere. We must not express it with a C. We must not express it with an anger, an accusation, but instead with, with a sorrow and, and a, an attempt to draw people in and say, well, here's why, here's why I go with this, because the alternative is awful. Don't you feel it? Don't you feel the coercion of society, the coercion of culture? We believe and pronounce things today that 10 years ago were ridiculous. And almost saying that today sounds hateful. Don't you feel that? It's because the power of the age is pushing us in a certain direction. That's, that's why I go with this. I, I think there's something actually helpful in a book that comes from outside of us, from, from somewhere else. We have a society right now that's trying to fix a world on sand. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The only thing that we're left with in the end is might makes right. And that's a subtle indictment that we need to say graciously, winsomely, not in anger as an accusation. But his point, the Peter's point, really is not so much to talk about the futility of other things, but to talk about the beauty of this thing. Where the scripture came from, not from us. It is not that God did something and the human prophets examined it and put their own interpretation on it. The word comes not from the will of man, but from God. End of verse 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Not of their own doing. It certainly uses their own words. He used men, for sure, but it's not of their own doing, not of their own will. He carried them along like a parent carries a kid in a bucket seat. The parent carries the kid when, where, and how the parent chooses, and the kid gets there by the parent's choice, by the parent's power. God carried along his writers so that every single word written was the word God wanted written, how and when he wanted it written, by the hand of a human, in the vocabulary of the human for sure, but from God. The technical language, if you want to write this down, sometimes you see it in statements of faith, verbal plenary inspiration. The Bible came from verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal Word, plenary, all the words, fullness, inspiration, inspired by God, breathed out, that is, by God into and through the human. He uses the vocabulary of his chosen prophet, uses the language of that writer too, but carries the writer along controlling every word. Verbal, plenary, inspiration. That's why we would do well to hear and to heed this word. It's not human wisdom collected and passed down. The 66 books of the Bible written across centuries, across different continents in three different languages, mostly Hebrew and Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, given through a host of different men from powerful kings to lowly day laborers, all of it telling one single coherent story. And that's a key point, actually, that helps us realize that the Bible alone is God's word. 
There's no more word after it, no more books after it. Just these 66. Because the story told is over. We've all had the experience of, of watching a movie when every little bow is all tied up and the evil guys have been killed and the, the couple gets married and everything is all done and it made so much money that they decide to make a sequel. And you kind of say like, how are you going to do that? And they managed to like unwind the whole thing again. Like, you know, the evil guys weren't actually killed and they're, they're back and the plan's twice as bad as before, but they, they changed the whole thing. And you look at that and you realize, I know why you did that, because you want to make some money, but the, this is a terrible storytelling. Because the story was written not for a sequel. And it was done. That's the Bible. It's done. The whole thing's written. Now, the last chapter has yet to be fulfilled, the second coming, but it's written right there. All the beginning, the, the creation, the fall into sin, the promise of God's Redeemer to come, and then he comes, and he dies and rises again and sends his spirit to build his church and spreads his word of salvation everywhere across all the earth. All that's left is the very last piece, the second coming, and happily ever after. The story is all right here. There isn't anything else you could logically add to it. It's done. It's finished. The word of God, given by God through men, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here it is. And we do well to read it and to heed it. A lamp in our darkness, showing us Christ, helping us walk with him. Someone may hear that and say, logically, well, come on. You just use the Bible to tell me what the Bible is. Sure, the Bible says the Bible is the Bible. Isn't that kind of a little bit of a circular argument? <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. By the nature of it, it would have to be. If the Bible was actually the word of God, it would claim to be the word of God, and you can't get out of that. I can't get out of that. I'm not going to try to. Yes, there is a circular argument to that by very nature. But here's the reason we can believe it, that it actually comes from outside of us. Here's the reason we can believe that it actually comes from outside of us. The way the book breaks out of the circular and shows it is from God is verse 19 where we started. This book says this book is from God. This book says this book is reliable without error. Those are big claims. Made all the more sure now because so much of it has finally come to pass. After centuries of waiting, it has been fulfilled. We can believe this book in large part because as we read it, God speaks to us and uses it as the sword of the Spirit that it is to poke and to prod, even to pierce into our hearts from outside of us to change us, to change us in ways that we don't predict and maybe don't even want. 
That's a sign that it's coming from outside of us, so that it pushes us in ways that we don't want. That happens. So read it and find out. That happens. But even more sure, even more certain above that, we have the actions of God in the world as he broke into it again and again and again and finally in the person of God, the Son, Jesus. People saw him and heard him and touched him, saw the transfiguration with their very eyes, heard the voice of God with their own ears loud and clear. People saw Jesus perform his miracles. They didn't hear about his philosophy. They saw the dead man get up out of the grave and walk out. To come out of the smell of the tomb alive. Then they saw Jesus himself dead and held his body and wrapped it up, saw the tomb where it was and then saw the grave close empty and had lunch with him the next week. Facts. Fulfillment of this book done by God before our eyes and then reported to us. None of us were there. We couldn't be. It happened in time and place, and we don't live in that time and place. But you could put a pin on it. It happened in time and place. And people said so. People said, I saw it. People said, I heard it. And we're willing to die for that, hundreds of people. Not die for a philosophy, die for a fact. That's different. Those are reliable witnesses testifying to us what God did in time and space to make this word all the more sure. You may have been inclined to believe it before, but when you consider that, that should make it even more certain in your mind, firmed up even more within your soul. This is trustworthy. All of its promises are true. God has said and done, 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 said and not yet done. But he will. Look at the track record. Pay attention to this word, a lamp in this dark world, given by God in kindness for you. Let me pray. Lord, will you help us to hear your word and to pay attention to it, to embrace it and to live off of it, to eat it up as food. I pray that for me first and for all of us here. Because a biblical people, a people who care about this book, people who find life in it, who find you in it, Spirit of God, help us with that, please. Build your church, use your word, honor the Son, and send him soon so that we won't need this book anymore. We trust you to do that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.